Scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. You will find this in your pew Bible on page 1595. Luke, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw down yourself from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, Sorry. It says, do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take the words of Scripture read to us and lodge them firmly in our hearts. And as we reflect together on these words, Lord, would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, Amen. Let me begin with a video. I'm going to ask Vanessa to put on a video for us. Sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, so then you'll have to. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. Go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. Or you can wait. 
be back. Stay in the chair, okay? Okay. leave and then I'll come back okay so you can either eat it right now or you can wait either way okay okay how'd you do did you do good you did yeah. you wanted to eat it didn't you yeah so did I tell you to give you another one okay now you can have both you need them. <laughs> How many of us have ever been in situations like those kids? Can't wait. Tempted. How many of us have been drawn to something that looks so attractive? and given in to our desires like that last little girl. Well, she did regret it, but sometimes when we have given in to baser desires, we regret. Temptations come in so many different ways, right? And today we look at that temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The word that is translated tempt or tempted also has the meaning of to try or to attempt to endeavor or to test. Temptations test our faith. No doubt about that. Trials that come, difficult or trying times, also has the effect of tempting us to fall from faith or to walk away from God. The question is not whether we will face these temptations or not. No one, no human being is exempt from trials and temptations, not even our Lord Jesus as we saw yeah, from the reading earlier. All of us definitely go through or face temptations the question is, how do we face them and do we really know how devious and how strong these temptations can be? And C.S. Lewis observed in his book, Mere Christianity, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ 
because he is the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full, to the full, what temptation means. The only complete realist. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews can say this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Now, sometimes we think, I don't know about you, when, when I read those, this, this account, uh, in Luke and even in Matthew, we think it's a cinch for Jesus to quote those Bible verses to the devil and to stand against temptation. But is that true? We looked last week at Jesus' baptism. He had been baptized by John and the Holy Spirit had descended on him. God the Father had affirmed Jesus as his beloved son. You, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. In Luke and in Mark, the record shows that God spoke directly to Jesus. You are my beloved son. In Matthew, uh, God is recorded as speaking to everybody. This is my beloved son. Take note that the, the, the affirmation is unconditional. It was not because Jesus had begun his ministry and he had done well. It was not because Jesus had already performed miracles uh, or done something important. Uh, writers have called, or commentators or scholars have called those years from 12 when Jesus, when we had that little story about Jesus in the temple, up to the time when he appeared for baptism, the hidden years. And to all intents and purposes, if we look at the last two verses, 51 and 52 in chapter 2, those hidden years were very much normal. Jesus spent it like any other Jewish boy, growing up in a home and taking up the trade of his father, learning the trade and uh, getting into it himself. But now here Jesus was out in public ministry, uh, being baptized. He hadn't done anything. He had just come from Nazareth. Uh, and if we look at Nathaniel's comment in John, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like uh, perhaps coming from a very small town, yeah, Greek or Cha'a or someplace like that, coming into Jerusalem, into Jordan to be baptized. Jesus had done nothing, but here God was affirming him. And the Holy Spirit then came upon him in bodily form, we are told. Uh, he could see a dove coming upon him, the Holy Spirit, and throughout his ministry, Jesus would be led by the Holy Spirit. And the first thing the Holy Spirit did after baptism was to lead Jesus <coughs> excuse me, into the wilderness. Michael Card, in his commentary on this particular chapter of Luke, quotes Dr. William Lane Craig, a theologian and philosopher. And he says this, true sonship is always established in the wilderness. True sonship, that relationship between father and son is always established in the wilderness. It is in testing times that relationships are tested. Israel went into the desert or was led into the desert they ended up wandering around the desert for 40 years and still failed to live their identity as God's son. And in Hosea, through Hosea, God says this very clearly to 
his people. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to the idols. And now, at this time, Jesus would enter the desert and there meet his, the first challenge to his identity as the Son of God. Would Jesus be able to stand? I know asking the question is moot because we have the whole story with us. But really, when we look at it, if we were to put aside all that we know on hindsight and journey with Jesus, would he be able to face these temptations and not give in like Israel did? The devil's one purpose is always to pull people away from God to destroy those whom God loves. He succeeded in making the first Adam sin. He was now having his go at the second Adam. Luke tells us that the devil came towards the end of the time when Jesus had been fasting. Jesus had been fasting 40 days, no food, and that's like a month and 10 days. Jesus was hungry. Don't doubt that. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. You know, sometimes when I read this account, uh, we seem, I seem to have the impression that the hunger didn't bother him. Okay lah, tahan. And then just, you know, throw that verse at the devil and ward him off and calmly quote that verse. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone and dismiss the temptation just like that. But if we were to take some time to sit with this passage and meditate on it and consider and reflect what it means to be hungry, there was no doubt that Jesus had his stomach yelling at him. And we will know why precisely this was a temptation. Most of us have been hungry before, I'm sure. That hollow feeling, gnawing at your stomach, the gastric juices swishing around and that ache right there in the middle of your abdomen. Jesus felt all of that. And Jesus had to hold it, tahan, and say no to the devil because this was not God's way. It would have been so simple. In fact, the stones there uh, somebody observed, Malcolm Mutgeridge, a British media personality, was doing a documentary in Israel. And at one point in time, towards evening, he noticed as the light fell on the stones how much they were like. He describes them as well-baked loaves of bread, those brown stones. And he commented that, you know, if Jesus had just said yes and done that, he would have been a celebrity. The solution to economic bread and butter issues that everyone gets so concerned with when election comes, whichever the country. And he says, you know, Jesus would have been the star of London Business School, of Harvard Business School. He would have his statue put up in countries all around. But Jesus declined because being the Son of God was not about self-preservation. Being the Son of God was not being self-serving. 
And we remember Jesus said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Jesus would do that. Jesus would provide food when the time was right. And we remember he fed 5,000 with uh, two fish and five loaves. But this was not the time. This was not about himself. And the phrase that Jesus quoted, man shall not live by bread, or man does not live by bread alone, is part of the larger text in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the beginning, that recalled how God led Israel into the wilderness. And in the text, Moses reminded the Israelites, God led you in the wilderness, humbled you with your hunger and provided you with manna in order to test you so that you may know that human beings do not live by just filling up your stomachs, but that you are sustained by God's word. And Israel turned around and said, why manna every day? Can we have some meat? Monumental fail. The second stab at Jesus was about power and control and what Jesus was, would be able to do. The devil offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Imagine that. Imagine if Jesus just had all of that under his authority. That was precisely what Jesus had come to do, to bring all things under God's authority and ruled. And here they were, on a platter offered to him. And if he had that authority, I think, as I look at that, Jesus, you have all this authority with all these nations. Go at them, do what you need to do to bring about the best, what is good for the nations. He could dictate how the nations should live and what they should be. But there was a catch to this. Jesus had to bow down to worship the devil. In other words, Jesus had to submit to the devil and give him allegiance, not God. Jesus did not come to be preoccupied with self-image, with receiving power and glory from the kingdoms of the world. Jesus' mission was to bring people back to God, a mission of reconciliation, a mission that involved allowing people to choose freely. Israel failed and failed hugely. They were waiting for Moses. You remember Moses had gone up into the mountain to be with God, to bring down the Ten Commandments, and they got impatient. They forgot God's promise of the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Their concern was so immediate about what they could see and touch. And so they made a golden calf instead and worshipped it instead of God, and they sold out. Jesus, in confronting the devil, quoted once more from Deuteronomy. From chapter 6 and verse 13, this time, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And again, this verse is part of a larger text that warns the people not to forget God when they settled in the land, they had already forgotten God once in a big way, worshipping the golden calf. And along the way... Sorry. And along the way, at intervals, they kept forgetting God, that God was their provider. They kept distrusting God. And so Moses tells them, 
when you get into that land, when you settle in, when you see it flowing with milk and honey and enjoy its produce, don't forget God. You are to worship God alone because it is God who has provided you with all these things. Serve Him only. Don't run after the gods of the nations around you like you did with the golden calf. And the golden calf was something they had taken from Egypt. And so Jesus knew where his loyalties lay. It was with God. A third stab at Jesus. The devil took Jesus to the highest point of the temple, definitely much higher than our highest point here. And some sources say it was as much as 20 stories up or higher. And again, the devil challenged Jesus on his identity, if you are the Son of God. So Jesus, big deal. You're the Son of God. Throw yourself down. Surely God will send his angels to catch you. After all, you're his son, precious to him. And that's what his word says, doesn't it? And the devil quoted from Psalm 91. Please note, the devil knows how to quote scripture as well. Don't think he doesn't. Huh? And Psalm 91 says he will order his angels to protect and guard you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. NLT. You see, the thing was, while the devil knows how to quote scripture, he quoted it out of context. And that's why, this is an aside, it's always dangerous to pick up a couple of verses from uh, the Bible and quote them. These two verses from Psalm 91, if you read the whole psalm, was about, yes, God's protection for those who put their trust in God. But it was not about God catching and protecting those who deliberately throw themselves off a high building in order to test God. That in itself is an act of distrust. And so Jesus recognized the temptation for what it was. It was a lure to self-gratification. It was a presumptuous act equivalent to Israel's grumbling and complaining at this place called Rephidim, when there was no water. After they had been at that place, Moses renamed that place and called it Massa, test, and Meribah, quarrelling, because the people quarrelled with God. And the people were quick to accuse and distrust God, they insisted on instant service. If you think our generation is an instant generation, look at the Israelites. They wanted things like, now God, yesterday if possible, all that meat. And Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 16, where Moses recalls this incident and tells the people do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, having been affirmed by God, stayed true to his identity as the Son of God. Jesus put his trust in God his Father and did not give in to the temptations to do things via shortcuts or expediently. You realise that all that the devil tempted Jesus with were good things. Feed the hungry. Uh, have authority over the nations and do good to them. Put your trust in God, so to speak, on the surface. But these 
were shortcuts. These were expedient, doing things expediently. They, they did not follow God's way of self-sacrifice, of giving, of generosity, of freedom of choice. And Jesus withstood them. And we are told at the end in verse 13 that the devil left him, but it wasn't like the devil gave up and went away for good. The devil went away to bide his time. There would be other times in Jesus' ministry in the coming three years where the devil would again rear his head. For example, if you remember, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Yeah, and Peter very quickly said, you are the Messiah, so sure. And then when that acknowledgement had been made and Peter spoke on behalf of the other disciples, Jesus began to teach them what kind of Messiah he was, that this Messiah would go to Jerusalem, be arrested, suffer, and be crucified, and die, and rise again. But you know, uh, be arrested, crucified, suffer. They never heard that last part about rising again. And so G uh, Peter, as usual, very quickly said, don't say that. That's not what a Messiah is about. You're going to be victorious. And we say that to people nowadays. Don't say that. In Christ, you are victorious. Yes, Christ has won the victory, but we need to get through the battle sometimes. And Matthew tells us, Luke doesn't record it for us, but Matthew tells us and Mark tells us in their accounts, that Jesus turned round, rebuked Peter, calling him Satan. You are not going God's way, Peter. You are going Satan's way. Get behind me. Don't pull me away from God's will. Don't take the shortcut. And then there was the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, Jesus wrestling in prayer, uh, wrestling with his will or his father's will, which way would he choose? And Jesus had the freedom of choice. Don't think that he did not. He did. But Jesus' heart was driven by love, and Jesus' heart was to do the father's will. Luke tells us Jesus prayed, but Matthew records for us that Jesus prayed three times, and each time he moved nearer to surrender until he completely surrendered to God. Not your will, not my will, but yours be done. Sometimes again we think that, yes, Jesus wrestled, but we don't appreciate how difficult it was, that temptation to not do this because of the horror of being weighed by the sin, of having the sins of humanity put upon him, the horror of being separated from his father, which had never, ever happened before. Jesus was tempted to walk away. If you will take this cup, if it is possible, let me not drink it. And yet Jesus knew that giving in to that temptation was not God's way. And even as Jesus faced these temptations, the three in the desert, Jesus became surer of his own identity. This is who I am, God's son, and I I'm going to do my mission God's way. You and I are not exempt, not free from temptation. And we know that. And the devil, although he's defeated, 
will not rest until he is thrown into the lake of fire. The evil forces that he commands are active and seek to pull us away from God. Friar Albert Hess, a Franciscan monk, wrote a book called Living the Lord's Prayer. And in it, he talks about how we can live out, phrase by phrase, the Lord's Prayer. And in the chapter on Lead Us Not Into Temptation, he quotes another monk, Thomas Merton. And Thomas Merton knew these kind of things firsthand. As a young man, he lived life in today's world to the full uh, with drinks, women, and all that kind of thing. And Merton sees evil as a force of deception, and this is what he said. Something is cooking. And look out. If you stay out of the way of this force, you are better off. And if you go horsing around with it, you are in trouble. And if you recall that video, that's what the kids did, right? They touched the marshmallow, they poked it, some of them pinched a little bit, some tried to taste it, horsing around with temptation. And a number of them could not resist anymore, could not wait, and just took the marshmallow. But God's way is waiting. God's way is giving people freedom of choice. And love gives that freedom because love doesn't force. Love does not coerce. And it is the harder way. Philip Yancey also looks at these temptations in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. Worthwhile reading it. And he recalls in that chapter... One afternoon in Chicago, sitting in an outdoor restaurant, listening to a broken man relate the story of his prodigal son. Jake, the son, could not keep a job. He wasted all his money on drugs and alcohol. He rarely called home and brought little joy and much grief to both parents. Jake's father described to me his feelings of helplessness in words not unlike those Jesus used about Jerusalem. If only I could bring him back and shelter him and try to show him how much I love him, he said. He paused, trying to gain control of his voice, then added, The strange thing is, even though he rejects me, Jake's love means more to me than that of my other three responsible children. Odd, isn't it? That's how love is. And Philip Yancey writes, I sense in that final four-word sentence, that's how love is. More insight into the mystery of God's restraint than I have found in any book of Theodicy. Theodicy is how God works in bad times or where is God in bad times. Philip Yancey talks about, you know, God seems so silent. God doesn't impose his will. God is more often than not hidden. How we wish God would show himself in forceful and powerful ways. And that was what the people screamed for when Jesus was on the cross. If you are the Messiah, get down from the cross and we will believe in you. Really? The criminal, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. What a temptation to demonstrate to the people that he is the Messiah who would come with power as the prophet said. But in God's scheme of things, the Messiah had first to suffer and bear the sins of humanity. 
You know, when we think back on the Israelites, they had a front seat on God's power. They saw how God swept away the Egyptian army. God came to them in thunder and cloud and darkness. They saw personally God's presence in a pillar of fire and of cloud by day, by night and by day. I'm not sure about you, but I wonder how we would respond if really God descended in a pillar of cloud now. Well, being here, I would probably fall off, but you know. And yet, when we look at how the Israelites lived and carried themselves as God's people, it didn't make any difference, did it? They still gave in to the temptation of self-preservation, seeking to fill their stomach above everything else, looking back to Egypt, thinking of the onions and leeks and whatever else and the meat they had. They still gave in to the temptation of self-image, wanting a king to be like the other nations. They still gave in to self-gratification, testing God over and over again, because they would not trust him. Friar Albert has, in that chapter on lead us not into temptation, likens temptations to a lonely, desperate dancer who have no sense of fidelity and commitment. Temptations will come up to us, tap us on the shoulders and ask, May I have this dance? Over and over again, they will come. And if we give them a glance, they will lure us. How do we deal with them? First, like Jesus, know who and whose we are. Jesus knew himself as the Son of God. And that is not a once-for-all knowing. It was an understanding that is lived out day by day, which grows deeper day by day. Our identities are formed over time as we live in ways that are true to that identity. And it is important for us to know that we are first and foremost God's sons and daughters, children of God, beloved by God. That's first. Then we are husband, son, father, mother, daughter, second. This knowing who and whose we are will only happen when we take time to be quiet and to sit with God. And for many of us to be quiet in today's age seems like torture. But we don't have to jump in and do this for an hour. None of us will last that long. We can begin with being quiet for five minutes each day. And when we are ready, stretching it to 10 minutes and perhaps even later on 15 minutes as we grow comfortable with the silence, with ourselves and with God. Very often, we are not comfortable with ourselves. And one writer has said, you know, when Jesus went into that uh, desert, he was comfortable in his own skin. He was comfortable as a human being. God constrained in uh, the body of a human being. And it is in that silence when we learn to be silent and silent inside that we will be able then to hear God speaking his words of love to us. When God speaks his love, more often than not, he doesn't shout. He whispers. And we need to be quiet to hear that. Secondly, we need to recognize those temptations for what they are. They are the devil's wiles to pull us away from God, to do things our way or to do things the world's way. 
not God's way. When we find ourselves doing things for the sake of convenience at the expense of being loving and compassionate and merciful and kind and humble, when we find ourselves doing things simply for our own interest or benefit or self-promotion or gratification, we have given in to temptation. In order to recognise the temptations as they come at us before we give in, we need to cultivate mindfulness and vigilance of going of what is going on in our hearts, in our minds. And that's why each service, when I invite you to be quiet, one of the things I ask us to do is to become aware of what is in our hearts, what is on our minds. Often, we act on impulses, on our desires and on our passions. Being aware of these things allow us to examine them, to scrutinize them, and to see their origins. Where are these things coming from? Ourselves, the devil, or from God? There are deep desires put in us by God himself. There's no doubt about it. Very good desires, like desires for God, desire for what is good, desire for kindness and compassion. But very often, they get kind of suppressed in our desire for other things. And if we see that these impulses and desires and passions come from self-preservation, from self-image, from self-gratification, then we are able, like Jesus, to resist feeding them and refuse to dance with them. Third, knowing God's word and understanding the context of the verses that we read will help us to know God and know God's will, like Jesus did. We will know when a verse or verses are quoted out of context and therefore deviating from God's intention and promises in Scripture. In the early church, they liked to use a form of explaining scripture called allegory. So, for example, a parable like the Good Samaritan, <coughs> uh, the characters were equated, the places were equated with spiritual things. So, Jerusalem was heaven, Jericho was earth, and the person travelling along was a Christian the bandits that sat upon him was the devil and that kind of thing. And the good Samaritan coming along was Jesus. That's how the early church fathers read the Bible. But really, when we examine a parable, the parable has only one point. And for that parable, and when Jesus tells parables, we can generally tell, like he says, if we have ears to hear or eyes to see, there's only one point, and generally, uh, the evangelists, the gospel writers, tell us what it is. And so the Good Samaritan was told in answer to the question, who is my neighbour? That is the point Jesus was trying to make, not talking about going to heaven or whatever it is. And so, knowing scripture, I cannot emphasise it enough. Getting into God's word. And that's why our churches are encouraged to read through the Bible cover to cover and not just across, but also to go deep, studying, meditating, memorizing verses and chunks of passages. And by the way, it can be done. Ask those who have gone through the apprentice class. Some of them can recite to you about 17 verses, over time, it can be done. Fourth, pray and practice the spiritual disciplines. 
Jesus himself taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is a prayer we ought to be praying each day because temptations come our way. The temptation to lie, to get out of trouble or to save face. The temptation to have just one more mouthful of food when we are already up to there and full. The temptation to copy a friend's assignment because we did not make time to finish our own. The temptation to lose our tempers at people or look down on people who are different from us or who do things differently from us. The temptation to assume privileges for ourselves or exempt ourselves from rules because we have the ability to do it or because we are intelligent enough to do it. The temptation to give in to another person's sexual overtures. All this and more come at us day in and day out. Jesus faced the temptations the devil threw at him after fasting for 40 days. Not before, if you notice. Physically, Jesus was at his weakest. But spiritually, as someone noted, Jesus was really at his strongest. That fasting and praying in the desert helped Jesus to concentrate and clarify his identity, his mission, and who and whose he is. So it's not surprising that Dr. William Lane says, true sonship is always established in the wilderness. Jesus didn't run away from those temptations as it were. He faced them, did not back down, but refused to dance with the devil. He said no. And I realized when I work with youths, young adults, many of us, myself included, find it difficult to say no. But we have to learn to say no. And because Jesus has been through it, when we face temptations, you and I can turn to him and find the grace and strength we need to overcome those temptations. And when we do, like how God worked through Jesus in ministry, God uses our experiences in turn to help others and to prepare us for the purposes to which God has called us to be his sons and daughters who will draw others and bring about reconciliation with God himself. Let us pray.